Chapter 19 of The Browns at Mount Hermon by Pansy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 19 Mary Brown's Troubles. We have another Carmen College guest today, said Mr. Brown, as he shared with Kendall Browning the hospitalities of his tent while they waited for dinner. He is spending Sunday with his friends at Glencairn, I believe, and as there are several young people in the family, they have driven over to the rally. I was introduced to him when I went to petition Mrs. Roberts for your seat at her table. It is Professor Fallows. You know him, I presume? I should think I did. The energy of this reply did not escape his host, and he waited expectantly for more, but Browning was silent for so long that he concluded there was nothing further to be told, and began to speak of other matters. But his guest was evidently preoccupied, and he was about to suggest leaving him for a quiet hour, when Browning said suddenly, Mr. Brown, I wonder if I may intrude a little more of myself upon you. I should like, since things are as they are, to tell you something of my college life, especially of the last few days." Whereupon he began at the beginning of his retrograde movement in college, and sketched rapidly his roads of descent, down to the Saturday morning in which he believed that he had bade good-bye to college life forever. Then he gave as briefly as possible such links as Mr. Brown did not already know, in the strange chain of circumstances that had contributed to the mighty change which had come over his life. "'And what are you going to do next?' was Mr. Brown's question, as soon as the story was concluded. Next I am going straight back to college to-morrow morning, to make a full confession and explanation to the President, and such of the professors as should hear them, and beg forgiveness, and ask to be tried again. At least that seems to me now the thing that ought to be done next." "'In that case, my friend, I think you may certainly consider the presence of Professor Fallows just at this time, another link in the chain of unusual providences. By the way, is he a Christian?' "'No. He respects religion, and is fond of saying that, if he could find more Christians in the world like my father, he would be tempted to make a profession himself, but he considers them very scarce. He is a grand man, a faithful friend to the boys, and one who has a great deal of influence over them, and he is a regular attendant at church, and advises the students to cultivate that habit, but that is the extent of his religious influence." Then, said Mr. Brown, smiling and rising, as the summons to Mrs. Roberts's dinner-table sounded on the air, you have a chance to get him to say that, since there are Christians like your father's son, it is time for him to take a consistent position before them. It was this confidence on the part of the younger man which enabled Mr. Brown, several hours later, to make just the reply he did to Professor Fallows. That gentleman was standing in front of Assembly Hall, waiting for the carriage that was to take him back to Glencairn. Kendall Browning was still inside, surrounded by a crowd of young people, old friends and new, all eager to take him by the hand and welcome him as a co-laborer in the cause they loved. But among the many who had stopped to shake hands with the young enthusiast and bid him Godspeed had not been Professor Fallows. He stood aloof, and waited with dignity while the members of his own party hurried forward to greet his pupil, who had just spoken what they believed to be earnest words for Christ. The professor's face was strongly marked with emotion, and indignation was undoubtedly struggling with the distress that was evident. He was still debating mentally whether it were better to speak or to keep silence. Suddenly he turned to Mr. Brown, who had just come out. "'Do you know, sir, that that young fellow to whom we have just been listening, and who seems to be a sort of protégé of yours, is grossly imposing on you? He is an impostor of the lowest kind." "'You mean Mr. Browning?' said the younger man calmly. "'I think he is very far removed from that.' "'That is because you do not know him. I do. Did I not hear you tell someone that you met him first yesterday? I thought so. Let me tell you who and what he is. A son, to begin with, of one of the best fathers in the world, who has every reason to be ashamed of him. A young man of exceptional ability, as he has shown you here, who has chosen to waste his time in college in all sorts of follies, and lead others into all sorts of scrapes, 
and now has capped the climax by making capital out of his religious training and his remarkable gift of language to dishonor the religion that his mother loves and hoodwink an entire congregation. Why, sir, he was practically expelled from college night before last. So he told me, said Mr. Brown, still letting the utmost calm of his voice and manner contrast sharply with the excitement of the other. He told you? When did he tell you? Why did he tell you? The time was two or three hours ago. The object— at least one of his objects, was to make plain to me how wonderfully God had been leading him through strange experiences. The professor made a gesture of impatience and spoke angrily. "'To show you what a smart fellow he is and how entirely he can humbug whoever he chooses. I know him. I don't deny that the boy is a genius. He has remarkable histrionic talent. But I thought that love for his mother would keep him from ever descending so low as to make a cloak of her religion with which to cover his sins. I am woefully ashamed of him.' All this hurts me, sir, more than I can make plain to you, for there were reasons why I loved the boy." The tremor in his voice comforted the listener. "'I think I understand your feeling,' he said gently. "'That is, if you look upon him as an impostor. But I am able to assure you that he is nothing of the kind. The fact is that, since yesterday morning, at which time you doubtless knew him well, a mighty change has come upon him which has made of him a new creature.' The usually courteous professor's lip curled slightly, very slightly. He could not help it, as he said, "'I am afraid you credit me with slight knowledge of human nature, if you think I do not know the human impossibility of so sudden a real change of character as that would be.' "'I beg your pardon. I said nothing about human possibilities. I am speaking of something far higher than those. It is the young man's tastes, feelings, intentions, rather than his character, that have changed, though that must necessarily follow. Professor Fallows, he loves God and is determined from henceforth to serve him. It is that which has caused the mighty change of which I spoke. In theological language, he has been born again. Your name, Professor, is associated in my memory with a long line of eminent theologians. You must at least be familiar with that term." The eminent student of history stood before him silent, astonished, almost bewildered with the sudden rush of memories. He was a boy again, a restless tow-headed bobbing boy in a village Sunday school of a summer Sunday afternoon watching the buzzing flies on the small window-panes, and surreptitiously catching one, even while he recited many verses that he had learned from the little red New Testament that the teacher held in her hand. He recited with a glib tongue and heedless mind. And what were the words? Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came unto him by night. And the words which were spoken by Jesus to that night visitor? The professor had forgotten them forty years ago, so he thought, but they wheeled into mental vision. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And here, after the passing of nineteen centuries, was another Nicodemus saying, in effect, How can these things be? He had forgotten it. This possibility of a marvelous experience outside of oneself, wrought upon one by divine power. Did the church believe in it in these days? It seemed doubtful to him. He was a nominal churchgoer, and he could not recall that he had heard much about it. Certainly his attention had not been arrested in this direction. Yet he was a believer in Jesus of Nazareth, and it was he who said, Ye must be born again. And here was one man in the flesh, an intelligent man above the average, he fancied, who evidently accepted it. He spoke at last in an entirely different tone, gently, almost humbly. And do you believe in him? Utterly. Every thought of his heart is sincere. You will feel it when you talk with him tomorrow. He is going back tomorrow morning, on purpose, to see you and certain others. He has a confession to make, he told me. "'Good,' said Professor Fallows. "'That sounds genuine, at least.' And there was a sudden light in his eyes that expressed gladness. 
Mr. Brown, looking after him thoughtfully as his carriage rolled away, knew that he loved Kendall Browning with a deeper love than that usually bestowed on pupils, and wondered if the boy could not win him for his new master. Meantime, Mary Brown was not enjoying life as she had meant to do. She found herself bewildered and distressed over recent events. The young man who had suddenly taken strong hold of her interests had had much to say about acting a part. Playing the hypocrite, he called it, and she was in hearty sympathy with his disgust. She had always hated deceptions of every sort. By nature, every fiber of her being rang true. Still, it did not trouble her that she was in that part of the world under apparently false pretenses. They are not false, she told herself haughtily. I am Mary Brown and no one else, and I have an undoubted right to go to the ends of the earth if I want to, and to do any work that I choose so long as it is honest, and I do it well. If I have chosen for a time to ignore the money that has been in the way of my comfort and pleasure many a time, and live as though my father's millions were not in existence, whose business is it but mine, and what harm to anyone can possibly result? I am doing good. Mrs. Roberts is having a more comfortable summer than she has had since she went to keeping boarders. She says so, and it is simply because I have turned my brains to her account. And the girls, bless them, are learning to be sweet and kind and thoughtful for me, who am less favored of fortune than themselves. As for me, I know how to help girls as I never did in my life before." But there was another kind of deception, it seemed, that she was unwittingly fostering, and it distressed her. Without any intention on her part, and assuredly without any desire, it was being taken for granted by those about her that she understood and was in sympathy with the subject around which their lives seemed to center. The girls, who at first had been reticent with regard to their personal experiences, had apparently settled it that of course she was one with them in this matter. Else why should she be here?" she had overheard one of them ask. On that Sunday evening after the rally she thought of it, and told herself it was a reasonable question, hard to be answered. Why was she here? As she now understood it, there was no spot in all the world, as she knew it, where she belonged less. Yet there was an undertone that constantly told her, and on this evening spoke more loudly than ever before, that she was dissatisfied with this state of things. She wanted to belong. These people, the plainest of them, as well as the most cultured, were in the possession of something that not only satisfied but daily sustained them through their lives of perpetual service and more or less drudgery. The impression left upon her by the services of that memorable Sunday, instead of wearing away with the week's pressure, strengthened and deepened. She had an added discovery to study over. This experience, whatever it was, changed people. Here, for instance, was Aileen the butterfly being transformed before her eyes. For Aileen, although she had promised nothing, had been wonderfully impressed, even awed, by that unusual request of Kendall Browning, and had stopped for the first time in her life to give serious thought to the subject which had been so often pressed upon her. She had gone to her own little private corner of her mother's tent on that Sunday evening, declining with emphasis her mother's urging that she should go with her to the Vesper service. "'I have been to meetings enough for one day, mother, too many, perhaps. No, I'm not a bit sick. No, indeed, I don't want you or anybody to stay with me. I would rather be alone.' So the good blind mother went away at last, giving her eyes a hurried brush with the back of her hand, as she joined Mary Brown, who was waiting to walk to the hall with her, and confided to her her sorrows. "'I'm dreadfully disappointed. Aileen seemed to like going over with you to that meeting this morning, and she was so ready to go to the rally this afternoon without a bit of coaxing that I did think she was interested. And now she is all off and won't go a step to this vesper service, though it is the loveliest meeting we have, and she seemed to like to help in the singing before this.' "'Perhaps she is tired,' ventured Miss Brown sympathetically, but the mother was not comforted, and shook her head. "'She isn't one of the tired kind, except for meetings. Aileen is strung on wires, and always was. 
No matter where she has been or what she's been doing to tire her, she always springs right up the minute she is interested. I kind of thought maybe that boy, being so young and smart and talking as he did straight to young folks, would—oh, well, there's no use worrying. I've just got to leave it with the Lord." Yet if the dear woman could have peeped into Aileen's little tent-corner but a short time thereafter, a revelation would have been given her. End of chapter 19